I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. James Conaway of the Napa Trilogy, a series of three different books that chronicle the changes and challenges in the Napa Valley. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Very nice to see you. Good to see you, Levy. So you grew up in Memphis and you thought of yourself kind of early on as a writer. I did. I, I started writing really when I was 12 or 13 or something like that. I had this itch to write on my grandmother's typewriter which I did. And then uh, in high school, I got interested in uh, writing poetry. And then I got into writing fiction when I was in college. And you got a scholarship to Stanford. Sometimes in life, things, luck is just a factor in the success of a writer and probably in the success of anyone else. And you have to admit that at some point, that not everything we do and achieve is totally due to our own talents or abilities. And that was a clear watershed event for me. Not so much that I learned to write at Stanford. I already knew how to write, really. I mean, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying I'd done so much of it by the time I got there. My style had not totally been formed, but it was coming close. Southern writers, we have to really be careful not to uh, sound like Faulkner. You know, Faulkner was such a wonderful writer. And the prose is seductive. And I think I still had some Faulkner in my writing at that time. But what it really did was got me out away from my hometown, to which I never returned to live, and introduced me to the world at large. And I suddenly realized how big the world was. And uh, I took a job as a newspaper reporter for the Times-Picayune in New Orleans after I was at Stanford and after I'd married my wife. And it was there that I got really interested in journalism. I did it just because we were having a baby and we I needed a real job. And lo and behold, I found that I enjoyed it and that more than that, I learned so much in a year and a half that I worked for that paper. It was an education that 
far transcended anything I'd ever had before. And it was, for a writer, it's worth doing. They wanted me to make me a city hall report. I wasn't interested in that, but the police reporter slot opened up, and they were amazed that I wanted to do it because it was a pretty grubby assignment. Man, did I see things, and did I learn a lot. And eventually, the first book I wrote was a novel called The Big Easy that was based on that experience. What were the key moments on the police beat? I saw the way the system worked. I saw how people at the wrong end, economic end of things, really the odds were stacked against them. Now, you got to remember, this was a long time ago. The racism was unbelievable. I don't know what else to say. The New Orleans Police Department has always been corrupt. So here I was on the inside. You know, I still thought of myself as a novelist and a nice Southern boy with a degree in English. I never took a journalism course in my life. There's a lot of things you learn, a writer learns, is by inference. You just pick up on things and you it changes the way you think. It's not necessarily someone coming at you and saying, this is the way you should think about this. This is the way you should think about that. It's what you see happening. It's the action of others. When I read you today, you have a complex sentence structure where you kind of have a tripartite sentence quite often, where you'll put out a thesis and then you'll do a descriptive detail and then you'll do a conclusion. So you'll say like, we thought we would go out through the mall. There was a tremendous vendor of oatmeal cookies and they smelled of something and that's when the murder happened. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's not a sentence that you wrote, but that's kind of how they work no. often. Well, now you're scaring me to death, Levy, because I try not to think about how my sentences are constructed. And uh, I don't want to start thinking about it, but that is, uh, you're, you're right. One key to writing is detail, getting the texture of the, the milieu in which you are and the person who, who might be speaking is in. And the only way to do that is to pick out specific details about things. And what you just said, I, it's true, the building up a little sense of mystery, you know, your example, we decided to go out through the mall this way. Well, why did you decide that? Then you see something along the way. So you, there's a little heightening in the reader's Sensibilities are also heightened, so she can smell the cookie or whatever this was. And then there's a revelation that doesn't solve things, but it poses a whole new dilemma that the writer and the reader then have to get into. The one question I have, having listened to you so far, is why exactly did you not go back to Memphis? Did you not have family ties there? I mean, why did you I had go family back? there, but just because one has family. There's no reason necessarily to go back. I'd never really liked Memphis too much. All the problems that existed in New Orleans, I was there. They existed in Memphis too, just not as colorfully. And I grew up knowing, much aware of two levels at least of society, really more than that, three levels, four level, distinct levels. And my family, we had what they call lineage in the South, my grandfather had won a Pulitzer Prize. He was a cartoonist. He drew an anti-Klan cartoon back in the 20s, but we didn't have, we didn't have any money. 
fortunately, when I was growing up, not having a lot of money didn't matter as much as it does today. Now it's all that matters, unfortunately, in a lot of American society. But I didn't want to go. The political system there was corrupt. The racism was, it was just, there were terrible relations between black and white people. Uh, and there was a sort of a determined, not ignorance so much as unfamiliarity with the world abroad and interest and any intellectualism, all those things. And I gradually gotten to the point in high school where I couldn't stand it and there was no point. I knew I wasn't going back. And how did you end up working for the New York Times Magazine? In those days, you could submit some work if you could get an editor to look at it. I did a piece about Milos Forman, who was the film director for the Times Magazine. They liked it. And they said, okay, now we want you to do a profile of Barbara Walters. Well, I didn't know who Barbara Walters was because I had been living in Europe, but I couldn't. So I said, oh, okay, sure. And I just waited and let the editor talk a while until I figured out who she was. And then I called up some people and found out. So I didn't, I didn't know I, how powerful Barbara Walters was. And I wrote a piece. I found her a social climber and a little bit pretentious and, uh, I didn't really understand why she was so important, so I just sort of put down what she said without cleaning it up and talked about some things about her that were sort of everyone agreed to, but no one would say it. And uh, I quoted a couple of writers who would just assume that I would not use what they were saying. They hadn't said anything about being off the record. And when the piece came out, there was loud clamor. She tried to get it stifled at the Times, which, of course, to its credit, ran the piece. And let's just say I never appeared on Barbara Walters' show on television. So I've actually read that piece, which appeared in 1972 in the New York Times magazine. And what's really striking to me about that piece, especially in terms of your later career, is that it becomes clear that she tried to handle you in terms of she was invested in having a a favorable impression be presented and she did certain things to try to get you to make that favorable piece that are probably coin of the realm in the circles that she was working in and you were like f you and you put all that stuff in the piece but i was never rude I was no never. no no but you kind of indicted her with her own well, words yeah. that way for example she said to you, when do I get the chance to interview you? Kind of giving you that hook of like, well, no, that's right. there's going to be she, a... She did say that. And you put that in a piece, which makes her look like she was, you know, trying to offer you payola. It was words out of her mouth. You know, I didn't entice any of this. And I didn't, you know, I didn't ridicule her in any way. But one of the things I had figured out for myself in journalism is that if you don't have some integrity, and if you don't, a point of view also is hugely beneficial. Now, it's a dangerous thing because if you don't like somebody, you can't, just because you don't like them, write a negative piece. And people who don't have any experience with the media and are not used to being, you know, are not sophisticated, that's a different deal. But Barbara Walters knew enough. She was not innocent, let's put it. She was the opposite. And if she chose to say those things, it means she was making assumptions about someone she didn't know. 
that you shouldn't have made. And I also think that it's important that people who have influence like that in the media are fair game because they have a lot of influence on people in general. And people in general don't really know much about the lives of the people that they listen to and quite often respect. And this comes all the way forward to Napa Valley, where people are venerated sometimes when they don't really deserve to be. Either they haven't actually done the work that produced the wine, or they're not the exemplars of what they seem to be or say they are. And to me, that is important because people who are on that sort of knife edge between celebrity and agriculture, which is a perilous place to be, they have an influence on the place. And their opinions and what they do with their land and who they donate money to get elected to positions that can grant them the favors they want, all of that stuff comes into play. So I essentially use the same approach when I wrote the books about Napa that I used in the beginning with Barbara Walters. So having read those books and having read that piece, I totally agree with you. And I think that what tends to happen is that when someone tries to handle you, you use what they said, pointing out the paradoxes in their own personality, for example, or some of the things that are unexplored in the workshopped our story marketing segment that most people just sort of take for granted as true. Yes. And I think that that's a little unexpected in the wine world. Well, there should be more of it. And so how it, did it end up that you ended up writing it about the wine world? It was a little more complicated than that. The first book was researched back in the late 80s. It was published in 1990. It was called Napa, the Story of American Eden. And before I wrote it, I worked for a few years for the Washington Post as a feature writer for the style section. And I knew a little bit about wine, and they asked me, the wine critic quit. They didn't know who to hire. And I said, look, I know a little bit about wine. I'll, why don't I write it until you find somebody who's qualified? <laughs> they didn't find anyone. So I took some courses like everybody and sort of tuned in to started going to wine events and started writing about more. It was really more about the world of wine rather than wine. I did pick wines I liked, but it was a different sort of approach and one the industry didn't care for because it wasn't just selling wine by ratings. Anyway, in the course of that, I only did that one day a week, and I went out to Napa. My wife, Penny, and I went up there when we first met. In those days, you went to Napa to drink free sherry at Christian Brothers. (laughs) That was about as sophisticated as it was. And I went out there, and I thought, my God, why— why is there no book about it? I mean, what happened here it was truly unique. And this is a big deal now. Look at these stories are sitting here, you know, the Mandavi brothers fighting in the vineyard and all of these things that have happened and the Paris tasting, how that came out of the blue. And I figured out that nobody had written a book about it because most wine writers don't write books like that. They don't write books about social histories is really kind of what that book is. And people who do write those books are intimidated by the subject, or at least in those days. I don't know what what it's like today, but 
about wine. They about wine. About yeah, because wine. wine is intimidating. You know, I don't consider myself an expert by any means, but I'd learned enough about the basics to be able to, you know, not sound like complete fool. And But it's intimidating. I know, I remember when I first started out, I would go to tastings or I'd go to dinners and these people would start talking about wine. I'd And I'd kept my mouth shut most of the time because they knew a heck of a lot more about it than I do and no doubt still do. But to me, a wine bottle was more like a keyhole through which you looked into this whole society that was closed to most people. And, you know, if you knew something about grapes and harvesting and winemaking and wine tasting, you could do it. You could hang out, essentially. And I did a lot of hanging out in Napa, and these stories were interesting. And you, I knew that I was on to something right away. I mean, I really knew nothing when I went out there. You didn't have cell phones in those days. You traveled around with a bunch of quarters in your pocket. And I started talking to people just one after the other, rough idea of who I would talk to. And I soon saw this matrix of connections among the people there. Mondavis, Winnie Arsky, Rick Foreman, and everybody had a story that connected with some of the other people I had already talked to. And they had other suggestions. And pretty soon there was this vast web that I was writing about and trying to figure out how to loop all these stories together. And I knew that some people in the Valley were not going to like it because I told the whole story, for instance, of the John Daniels family who owned Eagle Nook and that terrible time um, he had with his wife. And there were a lot, there were other stories, but they were mostly positive stories. They were just told in detail. It was the detail that bothered people in Napa because they had assumed, and I didn't even realize how naive I was, I, they assumed that the things that weren't flattering that they said or did were not going to go in the book. And they could never claim they didn't know I was writing a book because I told them. And also I had big spiral notebooks that I wrote in all the time. I think I had 40 of those notebooks filled when I finished that book. And uh, I still got them in a box in the basement. And when the book came out, it was considered defamatory, not defamatory, but it was considered an insult. And some people thought considered it a betrayal, which was silly because I had no allegiance to anybody and, you know, or to the industry. But there is a sort of holy nimbus about wine in the minds of some people. And that is one of the big attractions that brings people in who've made a lot of money they want to buy into the nimbus. They don't give a damn what really what the product. Wine is the only substance that I can think of that sort of offers that instant cleansing. No other substance really has this cachet and this powerful allure for people who they don't really know anything about wine. A lot of them don't really want it. They, they want to know enough to be able to talk about it a little bit, and they want to own something that other people want, meaning a label. It's an expensive wine, preferably made in Napa, because Napa is kind of the ground zero of lifestyle vintner hood in the United States. 
And the environmental story had begun in the first book because that's when they were trying to define what a winery is. And there was already tension between vintners at the top who had the most money and the most influence and those down the line who wanted to concentrate on quality and keep the valley the way it was then. There was sort of a double standard there. Some people wanted to expand more. So that fight goes way back. Second book was about a specific case or two. And I hadn't even intended to write the second book, but after 10 years, the place had changed so. And all these questions were still there, plus the big rush of new money was well underway. And I thought, okay, this is a different place Look at what's happened here. I didn't foresee this coming. I'm going to write a book, and it's going to define it and, you know, maybe help get it on course or something. And I wrote that book, Far Side of Eden, and I went back to Napa occasionally, not very often. And then I went back, you know, 10 years later and spent some time there, and it was the same thing that happened with the first book. The place was totally different, totally different, and the threats to the scenic beauty of the place now were real because they were cutting trees in the hillsides. And there were more than 400 wineries in Napa. When I first went, there were less than 200. Every single piece of the valley, the flatland, what is Napa Valley, was covered with steel trellising that holds up grapes. Now, it's infinitely better than houses, but it had those bracketing trees that I was talking about. And they not only are beautiful, they also hold the water. They do all the good things that trees do. And they sustain these streams that feed into the Napa River. So they had started to cut down these trees and it changes the look of the place. But it's important to remember that it also has effects on the on the environment itself and on the comfort of the place if you're someone who lives there. That was one thing I worried about. The other thing I worried about was that the public institutions that looked after the valley and would really come down hard on people who broke the laws, they developed more land than they were supposed to, or they made more wine than they were supposed to, that they would be fined for that and stopped because the Agricultural Preserve was established in 68 that mandated that. And that was all all in flux. And now the county is no longer enforcing the rules the way it once had. And the, there was a big push, there is a big push, to allow wineries to essentially double in size so that it can entertain tourists and serve meals and all of the things that should have been, have been up until now, banned from wineries. So there's four concepts that run through all three of the books. One is something you just alluded to, which is the agricultural preserve of 1968 in the Napa Valley. The next is the winery definition ordinance. The third is what is referred to as the watershed, which is what you were speaking about, about trees absorbing water in the hills. And the fourth is contamination of streams, reservoirs, and rivers. And since they are such key faucets of all three books, perhaps you could spend a little bit of time describing each and the challenges that each is presented with. Sure. Back in 1968, 
largely because of the, some newcomers that had come to the Valley that people didn't know them well, people like Warren Winiarski of Stag's Leap that ended up winning the Paris Tasting. He was one of them. Jamie and Jack Davies of Schramsburg, Tom May, who owns Martha's Vineyard, and others. They were sort of up-valley socialites, a lot of them, but they were serious. They were the new crowd, and they were environmentally minded, and they said this place needs to be protected because Silicon Valley, not long before, maybe uh, 15 years before, had looked like Napa Valley. And we all know what Silicon Valley looks like today. Well, they cut all these wonderful, they weren't, it wasn't grapes, it was fruit trees. They cut all these, they developed it, and it was completely lost its character. And I knew something about it because when I was at Stanford in Los Altos, we spent a fair amount of time there. It was a rustic place. You wouldn't, it's hard, hard to believe in my lifetime that it's changed the way it has. And it was still open country. Well, all that changed and that people were saying, we're not going to let that happen in Napa Valley. And they came up with the idea of an agricultural preserve based on a law by somebody named Williamson that had passed in the state legislature that allowed, if you had the right structure and credentials, you could tax land on its agricultural potential rather than on its developmental potential. So it means, say, you're growing corn, your taxes would be related to what you earned and not on turning it into bedroom communities. Remember, this is right on the shore of the North San Francisco Bay, one of the most precious bits of real estate in the world at the time, and it still is. And they decided to require a minimum of 40 acres of land to build a house in the valley. And that meant that you couldn't then have a house on 40 acres and then subdivide and give half of it to one child and the fourth. You couldn't do that any longer because that's how development, that's the way to do it. You break it up and then pretty soon you don't have agriculture anymore. All you've got is suburbs. And it was violently, literally violently protested by wealthy people in Napa Valley who lived, most of them actually lived in San Francisco, a lot of them did. They wanted to be able to enjoy their ranches, as they call them, and then be able to sell them to developers when they were tired of them. And this law prevented that. A Republican Board of Supervisors, all five of them are Republicans, voted for the Agricultural Preserve. And therefore, Napa Valley still looks somewhat less it did then because there are no houses there. This is in the heart of, you know, the highest real estate anywhere. And so the agricultural preserve, but it didn't actually define what a winery could do. And when I was out there, when I was doing this first book, the question came up from a planning director, the legendary Jim Hickey, he said, okay, what exactly is a winery? We need a definition so that we can hold winery accountable for things, and they can't just keep doing more and more and more and more. And the same people with the big estates wanted no limitations on what they could do, what they could sell, T-shirts, 
sailboats, whatever, whatever they wanted to sell and they thought would bring in more tourists and also food. Some of them wanted to be able to sell food, which was not part of agriculture. So there was a big fight over that. There were some concessions made, but the new wineries couldn't sell T-shirts and things like that. And the older wineries were grandfathered, so they were able to get away with some of this behavior that had nothing to do with either agriculture or wine. And that's what the first book came about. That was the, the winery definition. So first it was Agriculture Preserve in 68, winery definition in late 80s. Is the Winery Definition Act the same thing as a 75% rule, or is that a separate thing? Yes. No, no, that was part of that, too. Jim Hickey had said these people are bringing in grapes from outside the county. And as I remember, it was Mendocino or uh, Sonoma fruit that was going into these wines. And they wanted to put a stop to that, justifiably so, because if it's Napa, you want Napa grapes into Napa wine. So that fight was in my book, and it got me into sort of the environmental questions. And I realized that Napa, one of the things that meant a lot to me was the physical place, not just the beauty, but the way it functioned. You know, it was wonderfully kind of a little Gaia in all its, uh, in its own way, the way it functioned agriculturally. But these expansions and the pressure for development continued, and the second book, The Far Side of Eden, is in part about Jason Palmeyer's attempts to build vineyard in dicey terrain, steep terrain, terrain that's prone to erosion and to land slippage, things like that, on those steep slopes. He got caught doing something he shouldn't have done, and that became a cause celeb. And the Jace, poor Jason Palmeyer, he shouldn't have done what he did, but the truth of the matter is that often these vineyard developers who are hired by these vintners, so the so-called vintners, the lifestyle vintners, they're not actually making the wine, who are hired, they often do whatever they damn well please, knowing that they are not going to be prosecuted. Now, I don't know how much Jason knew about the way, what these vineyard developers were doing on his vineyard, but he should have known. But they are not fine. The owner is fine. And so the owners end up building into the cost of the vineyards, knowing it's worth it, these humongous fines that they nevertheless still get their vineyards. That's what they want. Because if Fines make no difference. You're going to just keep going. For example, if it takes a couple million dollars or more than that to develop a few acres of vineyard land, and then you get charged, say, $20,000 or $100,000 in a fine, yeah. that's a relatively small amount of money compared to the millions that you've already budgeted to make this a vineyard. Yes, exactly. It's, it's the cost of doing business. To my mind, what the county should do is fine both vineyard owner and the developers putting it in. The developers know what they're not supposed to do. And the real issue is that perhaps for wine, it would be really cool for the taste of wine to have this vineyard. Yes. But it's not great for the environment and for the things below that vineyard because the erosion yes. can go down. Right. And a part of the problem is that the vineyards in the old days the old days, I'm saying, back in the 
90s, uh, people were putting in small vineyards with the intention of making, everybody had an idea about a wonderful wine they were going to make. Now vineyards become speculative properties. There's just so much money. They all want the same thing. They all want to get inside this nimbus of wine that somehow or other elevates people and has its own instant social cachet that they are willing to pay almost anything. The regulations are keeping them back. And the huge industry today in development there is the vineyards because a vineyard is often a stalking horse in California for real estate development. In other words, first you get a vineyard, you put a lot of money into putting in a vineyard, and then you build a house to go with it. Even owning a vineyard alone is now worth a great deal, not necessarily because it's a great place to make wine, but because it's in Napa and it's up in the hillsides where big reputations have been made. And people putting in these vineyards know, they say, this is for the furtherance of agriculture. Well, it's really for the furtherance of glamour. And the wine that is going to be made there is often just like the wine that is made next door. It's good to have. It tastes good. You know, it's an individual wine and it's often well made. But is it worth the destruction of the hillside to produce more of the same product and to imperil streams that are nearby and to inflict what amounts to a kind of wound on the landscape? And one thing we haven't talked about here is that the community at large, you know, everybody who lives in Napa Valley doesn't own a winery. They don't all develop vineyards. Many people in the Napa Valley have indirect connections with wine. Most people who live in the Napa Valley like wine. It's one of the reasons they move there. But they have a big stake, people who live there who are not fabulously wealthy, who went there because they like the agricultural aspect of it, and they like the hometown feel that Napa used to have, the valley used to have. And good schools. A lot of people comment that. That's right. That's right. They do have good schools. And Napa Valley, in many ways, is an enlightened community, but it's not enlightened in the sense that they're really kind of oligarchs who have an outside influence in the sort of laws that are passed, permit these building of ancillary structures on all the wineries that now exist so that they can serve as tourist attractions and tourist service units and call that agriculture is just false. So there was a winery definition ordinance that said this is a winery and this is what you can do with a winery, which is in the pursuit of an agricultural product. Yes, that was way back in 1990. And that was a big fight. And there was also people who were grandfathered in who were allowed to keep the old definition. That's right. And then what happened in the mid-2000s, as you talk about in the latest book, which is Napa at Last Night, is that they changed the definition slightly to include things that were in support of agriculture, which can be defined in a lot of ways. Yes, marketing is the way they define it. This change was fairly recent, though. And agriculture means, essentially, the way it's defined in the county is raising a crop 
or a product and that's for sale. And now, and marketing has been added to that. It's an Orwellian concept. You know, if you go back in time, does agriculture mean plowing, planting a crop, growing it, harvesting it, making it into a product, and then selling it, making money, selling it, along with all sorts of other things to tourists who pass by. That's essentially what it says. And if you can do that, you can do anything. You can have a flatbed truck with people dancing on it out on the highway. I mean, there are no limits. Anything is marketing. And there are big fights, I think, ahead over how much can you get away with. But the past suggests that people will get away with anything they possibly can. All right, what does that mean? If they were all there by themselves, these wineries just doing this, that would be one thing. But Napa County is a community. It's a lot of little communities that most of the people who live in these communities value the place as a place. What is happening to Napa in some ways, it's what's happened to little communities where fracking, for instance, has come in, completely disrupted the place, destroyed the politics because people give money to politicians to allow things that the politicians know they shouldn't be allowing, but they do. Same thing that happens in the United States Congress on a daily basis. And it should be prevented. People who live in a place should have as much say or more say than corporations or people who are in sympathy with the corporate attitude, which is, in the end, our interests and our profits are the really what matters here. That is not compatible with community, and it builds ill will. And in Napa County, it is now boiling over. Water is an issue all over the West now. Well, actually, it's, it's an issue everywhere, but it's really an issue in California. And if you can imagine living in a place where your survival depends on having water available to you in some quantities, that is now in question in Napa. It's there. But at the moment, there is a large aquifer beneath the valley, but there are limits to what you can do and what people will tolerate. And I think it has been reached in Napa in 1968 when they passed the Agricultural Preserve the Act that created the Agricultural Preserve and limited development of houses. They were essentially saying, okay, enough. We don't want more houses. We want the agriculture to function as it's supposed to. And the way to do that is to say no to a lot of development. Well, they've reached the point now where Napa could do something really heroic again. You know, it's because of that law, Napa's got all these people, all this concentration of wealth, and it's still green. They could today say, okay, now we're going to say no, no new vineyards in the hillside. Some vineyards can be allowed, but overall you can not cut them, and you really are not going to be able to cut oak trees at all sometime in the future, and there are going to be limits on what you can cut now. It's a reasonable thing to do. 
Global warming is real. Everybody accepts that, even those who, who question it know that it's true. And Napa could have a great impact and have serve as a great example by saying, okay, we're going to say no to more commercial development on the hillside. So outside of Napa, three things happened. One is that the Supreme Court opened up direct shipping to consumers from wineries, which is a fairly recent thing. Yes. And then another thing that happened is distributor consolidation. So there's much less wholesale distributors knocking on winery doors domestically looking for product. And so it's harder and harder for domestic wineries to sell through distribution. And they also make quite a bit more money when they sell direct in terms of the margin. Yeah, make twice as much money. And then there's also the challenge of imported wine, which is often a price challenge. And so where Napa has often positioned itself in the last decade is in selling direct to wealthy consumers and maximizing that margin. That's happening in the background, and that's really pushing in to that winery definition ordinance question where what the wineries want to do is make more options to sell people wine and other goods there, make it a tourist destination there. Okay, look, here's the problem with that reasoning. These guys, a lot of them consider themselves masters of the universe, you know, great businessmen. That's a business problem. It's something they didn't foresee, did they? I'm sorry they didn't foresee the lack of distribution and that they built in these huge expectations and lifestyles that were supposed to be now supported by wineries that has nothing to do with agriculture. And so what they're saying is, okay, circumstances have changed that I didn't foresee, so now I want to change the rules and wipe out the great stuff that I've inherited so in the short term, I and my children can greatly benefit from this. And after that, who cares? That's essentially the attitude they have. And that's what forward-thinking people in the Valley and elsewhere in the country are trying to stop. America has to learn to do something it's not very good at doing, which is to say no to certain commercial endeavors. And this is one of them and the place to do it. As old Jim Hickey used to say years ago, if Napa can't survive, no place can. Well, it has survived, but it doesn't look the way it looked when he said those words. However, it could hang on to what it's got, which is plenty, by saying, once again, saying, okay, no, we're going to pass a law and we're not going to have any more of this development and we're not going to take 500 wineries and put in 500 other structures so people can entertain tourists. The county planning department will approve what essentially the supervisors want it to approve within reason. And consequently, when you have a pro-development board of supervisors, as we have now in Napa, they don't want to say no to projects. And fortunately, California has the initiative law where you if you've got enough signatures and meet other criteria, you can get something on the ballot. And this attempt to limit development in the hillsides is going on the ballot for this June, this coming June. And it's going to be interesting to see whether that's voted in. I think if it is, it will have a 
large effect on the thinking of vintners, and maybe we'll see some real changes begin to take place in terms of preservation. So you've told me three things in the past. One is that for you, Napa Valley was America writ small. It was a microcosm of things that were going on all across the country, and I think that that really attracted you because you could write about these larger issues and this one story. Because in a way, it's also the same story that you wrote about in another book about vanishing America. Yes. And then you've also told me that in America, there's not a lot of people who say, that's enough, we've succeeded enough. And so there's this constant drive to keep going. And you're kind of arguing, you are arguing in the book that perhaps this is a bad urge. Perhaps we should stop at this growth. Yes, because we know now that the resources are limited. We do not have the resources to provide for, in all ways, the population of the earth. Edmund Burke, often cited as the father of conservatism, but he said himself, capitalism is wonderful, but nobody has ever figured out at which point it must stop. I found that really an interesting quote. And Napa is, it's sort of the apotheosis of the family farm. It's the family farm that on steroids, essentially. And any farming, any agricultural situation is, by definition, a limited situation because it's the earth that has to produce what is being made of it. So if you destroy the land or the value, the scenic value and the ecological value of the land itself, nothing is worth doing that. And it really shows the short-sightedness of the people who, including many vintners who are proposing to do that. This is where really real integrity and real intelligence comes into play. Short-term thinking is a topic you return to a lot, especially in the latest book, and you often tie it to corporate governance. So you say the drive for short-term profits drives short-term thinking, and that's not helpful for environmentalism. To have to show a, a profit every quarter of the year, as corporations do at any cost, is by definition antagonistic to the long-term benefits because you're not looking ahead, you're not preserving what is worth keeping. The market, is, we know, is awash in wine. There's tons of wine available. We are not providing wheat to feed poor people. This is a wonderful product. Wine is the most fascinating single substance, perhaps, that we consume. But it is not essential to our lives. And it is, by definition, at the top, the beverage of the well-to-do, of, of the privileged. There is a limit to how much they should encourage and should take part in the decimation of place to get more of the same. It's a kind of loop that can't really be broken unless someone says, here at least, we're not going to do this anymore because we don't have the resources to do it. We're going to hang on to what we've got and to the communities that we built around it. We're not going to go totally corporate and give up an American community 
for short-term profits. And the third thing that you've told me in the past, and which I didn't get a chance to say before, is that Napa was full of all these interesting characters, and that helped you tell a story. Because effectively, what you do quite often is the story you really want to tell is about community meetings and environmental proposals and minutiae of laws. But that's actually sort of boring if you just talk about that. And so what you do is you fill the book with small details, eccentricities that are kind of well-cultivated and unexamined paradoxes of people's lives who live in this place, often who have very big personalities and who, as you said, have achieved some sort of renown. And then you sort of segue that interest and, and trust that you've built with the reader by talking about it in a such frank manner into, and this is that thing about the committee meeting. <laughs> you've said before, for example, it would be impossible because you've also written fiction. You've said before it'd be impossible as a fiction writer to invent a character like Jason Palmeyer, and yet here he was for you for your yes. second book. Yeah, and there are a lot of those in Napa. That's one of the fascinating things about it. I, I must tell you, though, that uh, actually I don't want to write about committee meetings. I just have to write about committee meetings occasionally in the course of this book. This is not a book about committee meetings. But committee meetings, unfortunately, is where thing, often nothing happens. But when something happens, it has great ramifications or can for the Valley. And consequently, if people know something, have a feel for the people who are involved in these committees, which is what I've tried to do here, and to make it in, you show the tensions between and the antagonists within a couple of these committees that, that I do write about a little bit, you get a sense of what's taking place. And it's important to remember that Napa's a relatively small place, and people do know each other, so animosities run high. And everybody has to be very careful because at the top of all of this activity, the people who have the money don't really often really don't know what they're doing. They don't know what's taking place and they don't care. It seems to me often that your point is that the way development is working in reality is often counter to the community. Yes, it's counter or it's indifferent, but it's not part of the community. That's my point point, really. When I first went there, rich people, there were rich people around, plenty of them, but you didn't have the class feeling as much as you do. I, I can't, hate to call it class because some of these people are not classy, but it's money, you know. Napa, for long, for years, had wealthy people. You know, John Daniels is a great example, that family. People who came, lived in San Francisco, and came to their so-called ranches on the weekends. That's a historic fact. That goes back more than 100 years, a couple hundred years. But people felt a connection. There was a glue that sort of held everybody together. We live in the Napa Valley. You know, there goes Mrs. Daniels on that horse. Doesn't she look pretty? But there was some, like, we're in this together, you know. Now that's all gone. The American agrarian dream is really dead. The idea of small family farms and Napa was the place where that could have endured if it hadn't gotten out of hand. So Jason Palmar's daughter said to me once I was talking to about it, and she said, we're no longer a nation of small farms, we're a nation of corporations. 
And she's right. And it was sad because corporations, we all know what corporations must do, and they must do it at any cost. And so it, it's an antisocial impulse, really. And something else that seems to bother you is the reputation laundering. So it's kind of like the carpetbagger idea of somebody comes oh, in. Oh, I see what you mean. Yes. And builds a bunch of strip malls, makes a lot of money, and then they hightail it out of town yeah, and yeah. go to Napa, use the profits that they made, and kind of launder their reputation yeah, as an agrarian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That is definitely uh, one of the attractions. But, I mean, for you, it's a... It, no, it, it it's annoying. Up. And Yeah, because it's so phony. I mean, America is about self-invention. It's true. We can't overlook that, but... The unquestioning way that people are just, they are instantly embraced as vintners and nobody will, will talk much about their past and nor do they want you to talk about their past. Well, there's a lesson there. If that's the case, do you want somebody like that so influential that they're the ones who determine what laws are passed and they are able to elect the candidates who will do their bidding? That, to me, is what's wrong with the American system today, at any rate. I think writers do have to take sides. It seems to me a writer should try to have some decent effect on society, even if it's showing it parts of it at its worst. That's certainly what good journalism does. How would you respond to the, perhaps, criticism that sometimes when I read your work, it comes off to me as kind of like anti-rich guy? Well, anti-rich guy, anti-rich bullies. Everybody in the world can't be rich. Money should not be the measure of, a, of an American. I'm sorry, but it shouldn't be. And you shouldn't be condemned if you're rich, and I don't do that. But neither should you be elevated for reasons that have nothing to do with your character or behavior. That's something that people forget. If you act a certain way and then pretend that you don't, particularly if this is detrimental to a community, community is important, then uh, a writer should say so, should show that, and got to figure out a way to do it where it's not PR and it's not overly critical. Somehow or other, you've got to show it as life itself, and that's what any writer tries to do. And I think... The importance of you writ large is when I look at the history of wine writing, you were the key person that said the idea that the only thing that matters is the wine in the glass and the score that results from that is devastating to all the rest of the context. Yes, that's well put. That's exactly what I feel, that you can't consume a product and pretend that you don't know that in its making and promotion are many detrimental things, and that all that matters is taste. All that matters is not taste. It's wonderful that people can make great wine, but you should not ignore the way they came to make it and how they got to the place they are. Napa became sort of inadvertently became sort of my Yachtop Nafa County, what it did for Faulkner's imaginary place, the stories were too good to turn away from. That's essentially what it is. 
And as you said earlier, all the problems of America do always appear there, but in a different, slightly different garb. And wine writing is not usually storytelling. Storytelling is what I try to do the most. And it can have a true and beneficial effect on a place that's so much the better. But today, I think probably drinking wine is a political act, or at least if you're in a position to talk and comment on it, you have to look at more than the taste of the wine, I think. So I don't think you intended to write three books about Napa. No, I didn't. And it seems like one of the drives to write another one was disappointment and disillusionment and pressing environmental issues are only getting worse. Was there another cause that I, I didn't realize? No, 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 you're, you're right. Essentially, I didn't think the story was over. What is happening is fundamental change. Change the laws, change the definition of agriculture, change the personalities and the types who are at the top of the industry in the valley, pointing in which direction it's going to go. That is a real change. That is a radical change. And it's in process right now. And I don't, it's possible that it could be stopped, but it's unlikely, I think. But a, a no growth policy, say there was a no growth policy, that would benefit people who already have land, right? Like there would be people whose land values would go up because yeah. it was not new growth. Well, that's true, but it's okay. That means that you've done something valuable if the land values go up. If they go down, it means you screwed the place up, and that's going to happen. Napa has run out of resource, so it should acknowledge the fact and figure out a way to introduce a little bit of modesty into the operation of everything so that they can maintain what they've got and let people go out and invest elsewhere if they must have a winery. The point is they go there because they have social cachet that goes with it, and that is not, that's not agriculture. James Conaway believes that the realities of production and sales of wine should be factored into the evaluation of wine. Thank you very much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. James Conaway's latest book is Napa at Last Light. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. Really, in the end, I think I would say that I'm in favor of wines that 
have some wholeness to them in terms of the person's life and how much actual effort, actual work a person does and has done in the past in producing a wine. 